you would, please open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew. As I said earlier, for the next two weeks, I'll be in the pulpit, and I've decided to take two texts back-to-back, both from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. This week, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, and then next Sunday, we'll look at verses 25 through 34, two great and powerful texts taught by our Lord himself there upon the mountain. I'll read the text, then I'll pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would bless us richly through your word this morning. Help us. Help us to see Christ in all his glory. Help us to see Christ as a worthy master, that we may forsake all others and flee to him this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we have something of a text that I think gets Christians back on course. It pulls us back to the true and godly way, following after Christ. It's something of a text to reorient ourselves, to reorient our thinking and our lives and all that we have and do, that it might be focused on the glory of Christ. It's a text that forces us to examine our priorities, our goals, our aims in life, what it is that we are living for. That's really the central question. What and who are we living for? And really, this is a hard text. It's not hard intellectually. It's very straightforward We naturally understand what our Lord is telling us to do. But boy, is it hard. Because this text exposes our hearts. It opens us up. It reveals what is in our hearts. And it brings us out into the light itself. And it forces us to ask, how worldly have I become? How attached to the things of this life have I truly become? And so it pricks our conscience. But I want to encourage you that it doesn't just do that, but it also brings us great joy. There is joy on the other side of this. That is to say, God's necessary but challenging and painful work of heart surgery will produce Christ in us. It will result in our sanctification and God's glory and our good. I've got three questions to walk through this text. Three that we need to ask ourselves this morning. First, do you treasure Christ? 
Second, do you look to Christ? And thirdly, do you serve Christ? Do you treasure Christ? Do you look to Christ? And do you serve Christ? We'll start with the first point. Do you treasure Christ? The text opens up with two commandments from our Lord, both a positive and a negative. Look at verses 19 through 20. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. And then in verse 20, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so right from the start, Jesus is setting these two ways before us. Two commandments, two ways, two patterns of life, two lifestyles. And you need to see that right from the beginning, these are opposed to one another. They are contrary in every possible way. We can either be those who lay up treasures here on the earth, or we can be those who lay up our treasures in heaven. Now, what is Jesus talking about? What does he mean when he says to lay up treasure? Well, literally what Jesus says is do not treasure treasures on the earth. Do not treasure the treasures of this earth. Do not overly value the treasures of this earth. And so I want you to see that he's not so much describing an action in these first verses as an estimation. What is it that we value? What is it that we esteem? What are we prioritizing? You see, Jesus goes right to the heart. What do we love? What do we adore? What are we trusting in, hoping for, longing for, yearning for, striving, and giving our energy toward? He's telling us right from the beginning, everything needs to be properly valued and put in its right place. And the first principle is that earthly treasures must never supersede heavenly treasures. They must never be seen as greater and higher than the heavenly. What are, what are earthly and heavenly treasures? What does he mean by those phrases? Well, I think we naturally understand somewhat intuitively what he's talking about. These are categories of treasures. And we speak of the treasures of this world, we're thinking of created things. Perhaps things that we need, some neutral things, maybe even sinful things. We might think of food and clothing and money. We might think of entertainment and leisure, culture. We might think of our own passions and our hobbies and our joys in this life from an earthly perspective. We might think of other things like our own abilities, our own personal achievements, our own skills and gifts, or we might think of human powers and human governments. All of this falls under that category. Well, what then is heavenly riches? Well, these are spiritual riches. They concern the will of God. They concern God's plan and God's gospel and God's kingdom. You might think of the, the great blessings of the gospel, justification and sanctification and glory and eternal life. All of that constitutes heavenly treasures. And Jesus is telling us that we must value those heavenly treasures far above earthly treasures. And what's the reason that he gives? Jesus gives us the, the command, but what's his argument? Why should we listen to him? Well, he tells us very simply, treasures on the earth do not last. They're eaten by moths. They rust away 
thieves break in and steal them. He's reminding us of one simple truth. Earthly treasures do not last. They're impermanent. They're corruptible. They can be taken or broken or stolen. We've no doubt heard the old adage several times that no matter how much you have, when you die, you can't take it with you. And therefore, to put our stock in these treasures is the height of foolishness, is what Jesus is telling us. I want to read to you another of the parables of Christ that shows us this rather clearly. In Luke 12, Jesus gives this parable. Listen to this. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will, t- I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What's the idea there? Here is a foolish man. And what makes this man so foolish? Well, we've seen from the text in this parable, this man is smart. He is skilled. He is successful. And he has taken all of those gifts and abilities that God has given them. And he has solely directed them to wrong ends. He has exclusively devoted himself to the treasures of this earth. And Jesus is saying, that is the height of foolishness. Matthew 16, he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Here is the foolish action, to treasure the things of this earth before the treasures of heaven. Well, what about those heavenly treasures? What does Jesus tell us? Well, he tells us that they do not rot. They don't perish. They are lasting treasures. and They're untainted by our sin. They cannot be touched by all of Satan's power. He can't access them in any way. They're kept and stored for you in heaven, should you be in Christ by faith. Jesus is telling us that these are the true riches. These are the true spiritual riches of heaven. It's heavenly food itself. And I have to tell you this morning, all of those blessings, all of the riches of heaven, are singularly located in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of the blessings of God are bound up with that man. And should you desire these blessings, then you will have to flee to this man by faith. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1. It's God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I want to encourage you this morning. Do you belong to Jesus Christ by faith? Then you're rich. You are wealthy beyond measure. You are incomparably rich in Christ. The billionaires of this world have nothing on you because you are rich beyond measure. But I also want to tell you that these riches, these blessings are not something merely in the future. They are something that you have access to now in Christ. That is to say, even now, you can have 
peace and joy and contentment and real satisfaction in Christ even in this life. I love the teaching of Paul in Philippians when he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Don't you love what he says? I know the secret. What is the secret, Paul? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, whether we have a little or a lot of the riches of this earth, regardless of our lot in this life, Christ is telling you, you can and ought to have real blessing and satisfaction and contentment in him, in the things that he provides, in what God gives to you that you could never earn and work for in your wildest dreams. Are you content today? Have you come here into God's house satisfied or have, have, has there been perhaps a gnawing discontentment in your life, a feeling that you desire something greater, something more. Dear people of God, examine your hearts. What are you treasuring? If it's Christ, you will be satisfied in him. Verse 21 sums this first point up so well. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what you treasure reveals who you are. Told you at the beginning of this sermon that this is a text that exposes you. And it exposes you because it tells you that your heart always follows your treasure. Wherever your treasure is, whatever you are treasuring in this life, your heart follows. That's what you're passionate about. That's what you love. That's what you yearn for. And if you follow that, that trail, it never lies. It always brings you back to what you're treasuring. What does that mean for us? Well, it shows us that love is a covenantal thing. What I mean by that is you're bound to the thing that you love. You're united to the thing that you love. And that gives us a great warning. Because if you love this world, and you are bound up with this world, a world which is passing away, then you too will go down with that ship. Your end will be the same end that the world of God, the world receives under the judgment of God. But there's good news. If you love Christ, if your heart is with him, he is everlasting. He is your treasure and therefore your heart is always secure in him. If you love Christ, then there is your heart. Dear people of God, what are you treasuring today? Second question. Do you look to Christ? Look at me at verses 22 and 23. Our Lord says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And then in 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So he's moving to a new illustration. He's giving a new metaphor here, and it's a metaphor that deals with the eye and lamps. And he tells us right from the start that the eye is like a lamp. Now, what does he mean? 
Well, you need both of those things to see. If you don't have a lamp, you don't have light. And if you don't have light, you're stumbling in the darkness. Likewise, if you don't have an eye, then you're blind. Same result. You stumble about in the darkness and you cannot see. And he makes a distinction here between the healthy eye and a bad eye. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I got 20-20 vision, so I must have a healthy eye. Or you might be thinking, well, my, my glasses, the, the lenses on those are enormous. And if you take those off, I will be blind as a bat. And am I in trouble, therefore? That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a, a healthy from a physical perspective. No, when he says the healthy eye, he literally says the single eye. It's a sincere eye. It's straightforward. It's single because it's singularly focused on one object. It's undivided in its attention on one place. Looking at one person. Looking at one thing in this world. Really, it's intended to describe the loyal believer in Christ. They're godly. Why? Because their eye is set upon Christ and nothing can take their eyes off of him. They're looking to him. And he holds the central spot. He is their most prized possession. He is the centerpiece. He is the glorious spot right in the middle. Their eyes are looking at him. And this is contrasted with the bad eye. And once again, it doesn't mean bad from a physical perspective. It means evil. It's a wicked eye. It's a deceitful eye. Jesus is saying there is a, an untrustworthy eye. An eye that is not looking at one thing, but it's constantly looking around. Never focused merely on Christ, but gazing upon all kinds of new things. And what's the result for this eye? Well, he tells us that the bad eye brings darkness. Those with this undivided, uh, divided, excuse me, eye that cannot focus clearly onto Christ, they are mired in darkness. They are full of darkness, whereas those with the healthy eye, they have light. That's what Jesus tells us. And that means direction, clear sight. There is no confusion. There's no disarray for the one who is looking squarely onto Christ. You know where to go. Why? Because you're watching where Christ goes. You know how to live. Why? Because you're watching how Christ lives. We've got to do this, dear people. We have got to set our eyes on Christ, and we do this by faith. We walk by faith. We see by faith. I love Hebrews 12, which tells us this. Let us run the endurance, with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What is the author of Hebrews telling us there? He's telling you that you're to be strengthened in your faith by looking to Christ. It's because he's the author of your faith. He's the source of your faith. If you want to increase your faith, you must look to him. Not only that, he tells you that by faith you see down at the end of the race. And what do you see? You see the perfecter of your faith. He's there waiting at the finish line. Waiting to uh, bring you into his arms. That's to motivate you. It's to set you going in that pace. To move you along because you see your prize. And this is so vital for the believers of God. 
because we know how challenging and how tiring and how difficult the Christian life can be. It is a race of endurance, and it goes on. And very often, if we're honest, we can grow very tired. And we can think to ourselves, I am lagging behind. I'm being left in the dust, and everyone else has just run ahead. And we grow tired, and we grow weary and hungry and thirsty. Perhaps we even become a bit distracted. Our eye wanders away from the goal. We look to the things around us. Maybe even in our worst moments, we begin to look back and to wonder, how far have I actually come? Wouldn't it just be easier to go back? Is it really worth it? There's only one solution. Have a healthy eye. That's an eye gazing upon Jesus Christ. How do you do that? Remember his love for you. Remember the love with which you have been redeemed. Look at Christ and recall his great mercy for you to forgive you of all of your sins. I encourage you, meditate often on the cross of Jesus Christ. Set your attention on the one who died for you and who now lives for you. Meditate on who you are in Christ. You've been set free from sin. You've been bought and redeemed. You're a child of God. And now you are alive in Christ, freely called a child of God. Remember your reward. Remember the body of Christ as well. Look around. See the, the, the fellow members of the body of Christ as they are running this race and be encouraged to run with them. Let me give you one more application here. As you keep your eyes on Christ, you need to make use of the means of grace. We're thinking a little bit about a race, running a race. Have you ever seen a marathon? Could you ever imagine someone running a marathon all 26 miles and as all of the people are, are handing out the cups of cold water along the way and handing out the energy bars and the snacks? Could you ever imagine a runner casting that away and saying, no, I don't need it. I don't want that. I can finish this race. You couldn't ever imagine it. There are too many Christians trying to run this race apart from the means of grace. Too many of us are trying to follow Christ and we are hungry because we're not feeding upon the word of God and we are tired because we're not drinking in the grace of Christ and we're not filled with his spirit and we lack in communion with God in prayer and we aren't worshiping God as we ought. I implore you, make use of the means of grace lest you burn out, lest you grow tired. Is your eye healthy? Is it singularly focused on Christ with undivided attention? A third question for us this morning. Do you serve Christ? Look with me at the final verse. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus He's a master teacher, and he gives lots of illustrations, and so now he's on his third illustration in just a short lesson. The newest illustration is that of a master and a slave. A master and a slave, and here he says there are two masters. There's God, and there is money. 
Now, you might be recalling, well, I think I've seen that word translated differently in perhaps older translations of the Bible. Sometimes it's translated mammon instead. It's a strange, uh, unusual word, and it doesn't just mean money, but it means all of our possessions, all of our earthly riches. It's uh, to be likened to the earthly treasures that we already talked about. So while it includes money, I don't want us to think that it excludes everything else. Those are the two masters. I want to make two observations about Jesus' teaching here in verse 24. The first observation. Notice that these masters are opposed to one another. They're fundamentally different. They're set against one another. They are set at odds. They have different agendas. They have different goals. They have different methods and different promises. And therefore, Jesus says rightly, you cannot even hope to serve both of them. You can't serve and advance one of these masters without decreasing the other. It's not possible. You can think of it like this. Imagine that there is a political race and there's two opponents running against each other and they are as different as they could possibly be with a different answer for every single issue. Could you ever meaningfully work on both of those campaigns? And on Monday, advance one, and then on Tuesday, try to advance the other? No, because every time you advance the cause of one, you decrease the cause of the other. It's exactly the same thing here. You can't serve one without hating the other. A second observation. Notice that Jesus tells us service is the true overflow of a heart of love and faith. Think about the flow of this text from the beginning to the end. How did Jesus start? He starts with what do you treasure? Are you treasuring the right things? What do you have your faith set into? What's your hope in? And notice where he ends up with service. And that's because to love God, to treasure him, necessarily means that we will then be servants of God. Let me give you a few examples of this from the scriptures. Luke 9, 23, Jesus turns to his disciples and what does he say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want to follow me, you'll have to pick up your cross, Jesus says. John 14, 15, he couldn't be more clear. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a very simple question we have to answer. Do we love God? And that has to show in a life of service. Does that mean we'll do it perfectly? Absolutely not. We will flounder and we will fall and we will sin and we will stumble and we will struggle all the way to glory. Can we do it earnestly? With passion? With joy and thankfulness? With increasing success as we fight against our sin and seek to increase the glory of God? Yes, we can. Praise be to God for that. But you need to see that here is where the test is. If you love him, if you follow him by faith, that must lead to self-denial. That must lead to service exclusively to him, obedience to him. It looks like us renouncing sins and walking in the truth. It looks like us seeking the will of God even at the expense of our own will. You see, it's texts like these that remind us that Jesus is never playing games with those who call themselves disciples. He is serious. 
is forcing an answer. He's telling them, and he's telling you and I today, a choice must be made. And boy, does Jesus know us so well. He knows that we're going to serve something. Our heart will be set on something. And Jesus is telling it, telling you today, let it not be yourself. Let it not be the things of this world. Jesus is telling you to cast away the idols of this life. To forsake the love of this world. He's even telling you that those things, they're not worthy of your ultimate affection. Only he is. This is a painful work you're called to. This is a painful task that we've been called to do. Cast away our idols. But we need to do it anyway. And we need to do it by the strength that only God can give us. I want to give you one more thing. God also promises you something better. That which he takes away, he always gives something better. He calls you to follow him by denying yourself, and yet what is received? Salvation, rich and full. This blessedness forever with Christ. It's life eternal before the face of God. It's to know God and to know his love and to be all that you were created to be under his providential hand. It's to inherit the riches of heaven in Christ. But it only comes through this way of self-denial, casting away other masters. Hear the word of Christ today. You cannot serve God and money. So serve Christ with all of your heart.